you'll turn with me or listen on as we read a very similar passage uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 33. I would actually like to back up into chapter 32 just a little bit. So we'll look at 2 Chronicles, beginning at chapter 32, verse 32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers. And they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 50 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his sons to pass through the fire of the valley of the son of Hemnon. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spirits. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplications, he as in God. He, God, received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David, on the west side of Gihon, in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thanks offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. 
Nevertheless, the people sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also his prayer, and how God received his entreaty, and all his sin and trespass, and the sites where he built high places, and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea. So Manasseh rested with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Amen. If you'll join me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have before us two chapters of your word. Uh, Father, two brief sections that describe the same events. Father, would you open our eyes to the truth of your word? Uh, Father, would you uh, calm our hearts from the cares of the week? Father, would you cause us to consider the greatness of your truth and of your being? Father, would you send your word out to your people, even from these sinful lips? Father, would you open our eyes and open our ears now to receive your word? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we have before us two very similar and yet two very different passages, and it is worth considering why this difference to start out. And I will be honest with you, uh, what started out as me jotting down notes in my own personal study has turned into 12 pages of notes, which I'm not planning to get through today, uh, fortunately for you, uh, but uh, and ten points, which I am also not planning to get through today. But the first point, let's consider together the great sin of Manasseh. Um, why this difference? Why is their repentance relayed in Second Chronicles uh, and not in First Kings? So both Second Kings and Second Chronicles record the sin of Manasseh, um, who was allowed to reign over Israel for 55 years. That was the longest reign of any king. Uh, for the people of God other than King Christ, uh, which we will get to in a little bit. Um, but why this difference? Uh, the book of Kings, which was really just one book, it's been divided into two for convenience, and the book of Chronicles uh, are, are written at two different periods of time in history. And so we need to consider that to really understand the context for Second Chronicles. Um, Kings was written pre-exile to focus on the necessity of a covenantally faithful king. 
So pre-exile, and the Kings really justifies why the people of God uh, are going to be exiled. So really, in a, in a lot of ways, it's important to consider the book of Kings as a call to repentance for God's people. And then Chronicles, set up next to it, is has primarily in focus the temple. You will notice that in Second Chronicles, chapter 33, uh, that nine of the 17 verses we read related to Manasseh have to do directly with the temple and temple worship. So there's a focus on the temple in Kings, I'm sorry, in Chronicles, uh, as well as the importance of the line of David. You may have wondered why Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogy, starting with Adam. That is why the, the focus of Chronicles is on uh, the kingly line of David. And so uh, while Kings is focused on the call to repentance for God's people, Chronicles, which was post-exilic, post-exile, uh, focuses on the call to faith in Christ. So therefore, the repentance of Manasseh is recorded in Chronicles. Michael Williams, one of the commentators I have referred to, says the two books of Kings were directed to the exiled people of God to explain how their actions had brought divine judgment on them. And one and two chronicles are directed toward the people of God after they had returned from exile. These books are intended to answer the questions that were surely at the front of everyone's mind. Has God rejected us completely? So that's really the question. Has God rejected us completely? And uh, you, will, you will notice a tie-in. This is the question that as soon as our pastor returns, uh, that our pastor will address in Romans chapter 11. Has God rejected his people? And of course, Paul says, certainly not. Romans 11 verse 1. So we will continue to consider this same question Today, has God rejected his people? So the wickedness of Manasseh is set up against the godly reign of Hezekiah. We have one chapter on Manasseh here. We have three chapters on the godly reign of Hezekiah. Let's focus on Manasseh now. Uh, Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Verse 2 Uh, He transcribed the abominations of the heathen. So he's replicating the wicked actions of the world around him, uh, even to the point that he was even worse than the heathens around him, according to the Second Kings account. Manasseh ruined the established religion and unraveled his father's reformation. You'll note in verse 3, he tore down the places that his father had built. So he's actively tearing down his father's legacy of faithfulness. Manasseh profaned the house of God with idols repeatedly uh, in verse 4, built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the temple. This implies, of course, the outer court for the Gentiles, the inner court for the Jews. This implies that both Jews and Gentiles were encouraged in this idolatry. Uh, In verse 6, Manasseh sacrifices children to idols. He used fortune tellers, omens, sorcery, talked with the dead. Uh, Manasseh's idolatry is the tipping point. Turn back with me to 2 Kings. I actually meant to read this earlier. 2 Kings. We read chapter 21 together. 
And you'll remember chapter 22 and chapter 23 are about good King Josiah. Let's read chapter 23, verse 25. So this is towards the end of Josiah's reign. Now before him, there was no king like him. This is Josiah. Who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor after him did any arise like him. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. It's a very sobering passage that not even the reforms of Josiah are enough. What is it that the people of God need? A king, a king to some, a king to come and save them from their sin. So the question is, has God abandoned his people? So the sin of Manasseh, back in Second Chronicles chapter 33, the sin of Manasseh is summarized in verse 9. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So by the end of Kings, the people of God are left wondering about the faithfulness of God. And what we see is that uh, God has not rejected his people. Uh, Those that are in Christ, all of true Israel, are in Christ and saved in in him. The sin of Manasseh is not greater than the grace of God. Just my second point. Even in the midst of all this sin, the Lord did not stop speaking to Manasseh and, his, and to his people. Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. It's easy to think here that God is somehow not gracious as we consider uh, as we consider the consequences of sin, and yet God is showing forth His graciousness that even while they were ignoring God, God continued to speak to Manasseh and His people. God is not repelled even by their wickedness. The sin of Manasseh is not greater than his grace. Manasseh, at this point, I think we can all agree, deserved death. We all know that the consequences of sin are death. And we can say those words along with Romans 6 and agree with that. Um, but in the face of such heinous wickedness, um, it's almost easier to say Manasseh deserved death. But consider here the patience of God in the midst of such a brazen assault on his word, his people, his commands, and his promises. He comes to us even while we are in sin. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. They paid no attention to God when he spoke. But not even ignoring God would turn God away from his purposes for his people. 
You cannot run from God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the dawn, settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Sometimes we think that we can run, but we cannot. When the Lord speaks, beloved, we should pay attention. We should listen. This is my third point. Pay attention when the Lord speaks. How often does verse 10 describe profession Christians today? <laughs> this is me uh, exhorting myself. Does it describe you or me? Uh, do we, like Manasseh, ignore the word of God? Do we see reading God's word as a burden? Do we see worship on the Lord's day as a burden? Do four chapters a day in our McShane plan seem like a lofty goal? Maybe I'll start it in January. Have we hidden God's word in our hearts, little ones, that we might not sin against him? So the men are reading uh, Thomas Watson's uh, body of divinity on the shorter catechism and the section that we did most recently was on scripture and uh, I commend it to your reading I think there's extra copies floating around someone in your house may have one but section two is on scripture and uh, I would love to read the whole thing because it's basically a sermon in and of itself but I have picked out a few choice uh Passages that I'll read now. Some, by reading the scripture, have been turned into other men. They have been made holy and gracious. By reading other books, the heart may be warmed, but by reading this book, it is transformed. It, it has comforted their hearts. When Christians have sat by rivers weeping, the word has dropped as honey and sweetly revived them. The Christian's chief comfort is drawn out of these wells of salvation. When the poor soul has been ready to faint, it has had nothing to comfort it but, but a scripture cordial. There is a divinity in scripture. It contains the marrow and quintessence of religion. It is a rock of diamonds, a mystery of piety. The lips of scripture have grace poured into them. The scripture speaks of faith, self-denial, and all the graces which as a chain of pearls adorns a Christian. It excites to holiness. It treats, it treats of another world. It gives a prospect of eternity. Oh, then, search the scripture. Make the word familiar to you. It is a spiritual optic glass in which we behold God's glory. It is the tree of life, the oracle of wisdom, the rule of manners, the heavenly tree of knowledge. There is no danger in plucking from this tree of holy scripture if we do not eat of this tree of knowledge, we shall, we shall surely die. Oh, then, read the scriptures. Time may come when the scripture may be kept from us. What would the martyrs have given for a leaf of the Bible? The word is the field where Christ the pearl is hid. 
In this sacred mine we dig, not for a wedge of gold, but for a weight of glory. Beloved, have you been transformed by the word of God? Do you go to the well of salvation for comfort, or do you find comfort in the world? Brothers, are you feeding your wife and children the word of God? Filling their bellies is important, but filling their souls is what you've been entrusted to do by God for his covenant children. This is your duty in your home. Feed your family with the truth. Sisters, consider whether you are coming to the well of salvation and whether you are bringing your children I will tell you that my wife does a Bible study with my children every day as a part of their school routine. And I love that. But you better believe that if I consider skipping family worship, that I have to think in my head, I'm abdicating my role as a leader in my family. I'm grateful for a faithful wife in this. Little children, are you reading the word on your own? As soon as you can read, you should be reading your Bibles. And you should be talking to your parents about what you read. And if you can't read, you should be asking your parents, please read this to me. Read me God's word. Have you asked your parents, little ones? You know, there was a time in the church's history that the church made an effort to read the entirety of God's word throughout the year, which when you consider how great of an undertaking that is, it would be an hour or two every week of reading God's word publicly before God's people. But it was to ensure that even those that were illiterate would have an opportunity to hear God's word. And we live in a very literate land. And unfortunately, the consequence of that is that we don't read God's word publicly enough. And yet we have our own covenant children who cannot read. Are we reading to them? Are they listening? Have they been trained in the home to listen to the word of God read here once a week? And I realize this is not this church. But do we look for any excuse to skip worship? Do we find that Sunday fun day and fishing and beautiful weather and all the other things uh, turn into the Sunday morning sickness? I can't make it this Lord's Day. I realize that that is not, that may be, but that is not something I think is particularly, that we are particularly prone to, but we must still guard against it. This is a quote from Matthew Henry, and and my fourth point. Parents can give many good things to their children, but they cannot give them grace. 
and I'll read the full quote in just a minute. He does not mean that parents should not show grace. What he's meaning is that children, your parents cannot save you. The full quote here is, It is no new thing, but a very sad thing for the children of godly parents to turn aside from that good way of God in which they have been trained. Parents may give many good things to their children, but they cannot give them grace. We have here the story of King Manasseh, the longest reigning king in Israel's history, who sat under his father and the great reforms of his father, bringing back godly worship to the temple, bringing back the Levites and the priests and the sons of Korah and all these men, and they clean out the temple, they purify the house of God. And yet we have Manasseh turning his back on that. And children, this is a warning to you. Your parents, your parents bringing you here today cannot save you. You must have your own faith. You must be converted yourself. Children, it's very humbling as parents to realize that we cannot save our children We can lead you to the well of salvation, but we cannot make you drink. The pastor can preach, but he cannot make you hear. Manasseh grew up in his godly father's household in the midst of spiritual revival. And in his youth, he participated in worship just like you. He had tasted of the grace of God, and he turned his back on it. This is a warning, children. We should also note how quickly the corruptions in worship resurfaced within the church, within a single generation in this case. With Ammon, it was less than two years. Consider that Manasseh had repented. Manasseh had torn down the idols and thrown them outside the city gates, and Ammon, within two years, brought them back. Let us be diligent to guard ourselves and guard our hearts against the corruptions of the world lest we be led astray by worldly worship. Children, take note of the shame that Manasseh brought, not only on the house of the Lord, but on his own house. You may think that you have a long life of sin. I can repent later. I will be forgiven later. And the Lord may give you 50 years of that. But as we learn from Ammon, you may also only get two before you are struck down. But notice next in verse 11 that God is more willing to pardon than to punish. This is my fifth point. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This affliction comes directly from the hand of God. 
And I think we need to be careful here, lest we be tempted to think that Manasseh deserves this affliction that God brought upon his head. This is not Manasseh's punishment for all of his great sin, even to the point of blood running in the street. This is not God's punishment of Manasseh's sin. Manasseh's sin deserves much worse than this punishment. Manasseh's sin deserves death. This affliction from God would be used as the gracious instrument of Manasseh's conversion. This is not punishment for Manasseh's sin. This is God's grace poured out on one of his children. Matthew Henry says, Sanctified afflictions often prove happy means of conversion. Sanctified afflictions often prove happy means of conversion. Are you under the guilt of sin, beloved? Thomas Watson here offers, There is a promise. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Exodus 34, verse 6. God is more willing to pardon than to punish. Mercy does more multiply in him than sin in us. Mercy is his nature. The bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when it is provoked. But, says the guilty sinner, I cannot deserve mercy. Yet he is gracious. He shows mercy, not because we deserve mercy, but because he delights in mercy. But what is that to me? Perhaps my name is not in the pardon. The treasury of mercy is not exhausted. God has treasures lying by. And why should not you come in for a child's part? This affliction from God was not his punishment for Manasseh's sin, but was God showing forth grace The grace of affliction, which is my sixth point. The grace of affliction. So believe it or not, Thomas Watson has a whole section in his book, All Things for Good, where he provides a list of ten ways uh, or ten afflictions which are worked for our good. And I thought about doing a bulletin insert, but I realized as soon as I said that, everybody would open up their bulletins and read his sermon on affliction. So I did not provide it for you. But I will send it out in an email this afternoon because it is really wonderful and encouraging, uh, especially in the midst of an affliction or a frowning providence, which, by the way, look back at hymn 256 that we just sang all about God's providential control, even in the midst of affliction. But I will commend it to your reading for later. But I'm going to tease you with a little bit of it now. The evil of affliction works for good to the godly. It is one heart-quieting consideration in all the afflictions which befall us that God has a special hand in them. Afflictions to the godly are medicinal. Out of the most poisonous drugs, God extracts our salvation. No vessel can be made of gold without fire. So it is impossible that we should be made 
So it is impossible that we should be made vessels of honor unless we are melted and refined in the furnace of afflictions. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Here's what he says about King Manasseh. King Manasseh was bound in chains. This was sad to see. A crown of gold changed into fetters. Those are handcuffs. But it wrought for his good. So the Lord sent the Assyrian armies and they took Manasseh prisoner. They put a ring through his nose, bound him in bronze chains and led him away to Babylon. But while in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and cried out humbly to the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him. The Lord listened to him and was moved by his request for help. He was more indebted indebted to his iron chain than to his golden crown. The one made him proud. The other made him humble. There's a lot more here, but I'll let you read it later. We're reading Job in our family worship. And Job is sort of the poster child for affliction in the Old Testament. He loses his animals, and he loses his wealth, and finally he loses all of his children, I think 14 of them, all in one day, in various devastating events. And Job's response, St. Augustine noted, could have very easily been, God has given, but the devil has taken away. But yet, Job's response to this affliction of the Lord was to fall down and worship God. Proclaiming the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So after his three friends present their three arguments each, and Job has his response We find that Job's earthly treasures are restored, all except for his children. And you may say, those of you that know the book well, well, he he had more children. He had seven more plus seven more sons plus three more daughters. But his own children, the original 14, were not restored. Could God have not raised them from the dead? Could God have not restored them? And so you may ask, what about his children? I certainly, I certainly ask that. But hidden in Job's affliction from God is the promise of eternal life and communion in glory. With the eyes of faith, Job knows that he will see his children again. They will be raised in the last day. Job is not at a loss. Job's children are not lost forever. They are in the hands of his Savior. That is the grace of affliction. Colossians 1.24 and following, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a wonderful future hope of glory we find hidden in this affliction from God's hand. But this idea of affliction and grace is not foreign to us. 
Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Of course, these are things that we have been considering as a church and Pastor Sharp's recent sermon series. There's sort of a unique reference to this chapter in Israel's history, Second Chronicles 33, uh, in the New Testament. Um, but yet only one. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 10, Matthew chapter 10. I believe our pastor has read portions of this recently in his Roman series, but it also relates to his Acts series. But I want to start reading in verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep. In the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. They will be brought before governor. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother, now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, You will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his is. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. You'll remember Acts chapter 10, where they literally preached from the housetops. And this is the reference to Second Chronicles 33. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy to destroy both soul and body in hell and I'll explain that in a minute are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will but the very hairs of your head are all numbered do not fear therefore you are more valuable than many sparrows 
So there's a reference here. The word hell in verse 28 is the Greek word Gehenna. And I do not know the original languages well enough to explain to you how the word Hinnom, the valley in which Manasseh sacrificed children, uh, was Greekicized. Yes, I made up that word. Was Greekicized uh, into the word Gehenna. But this is a very specific reference to Israel's longest reigning king and perhaps most wicked converted in Second Chronicles chapter 33. And so there's uh, there's a sense in which um, there's a sense in which Christ is pointing out this very dark spot in Israel's history, uh, and would no doubt have brought to mind King Manasseh to his disciples whom he was speaking with, especially related to this famous place of child sacrifice. And it's as if Christ is saying here, while Manasseh took the babies of Israel and sacrificed them to idols, Christ comes as a baby to provide himself as an offering, his own blood shed for our sin. Who should you fear? Manasseh had reigned longer than any of the other kings in Israel, but Christ, the true king of Israel, humbles himself. I'm sorry. Christ, the true king of Israel, reigns for eternity over true Israel. Manasseh's idolatry had brought about God's judgment upon Israel, and Christ was here to drink that full cup of God's judgment and wrath that we might not taste his judgment. Manasseh, unlike Hezekiah, who was buried with the kings, Manasseh was not buried with the kings. He was buried in his own house. Christ, while buried for a short time, is buried no longer as he reigns in glory and intercedes on our behalf as the true king. Matthew 10:28 is not a threat. I think that it can often be seen as that. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. This is not a threat. It's not, if you don't fear me, I will throw you into hell, although that may be true. This is a call to true Israel, all believers in Christ, proclaiming that his people proclaiming to his people that he has the power to save them, to save even great sinners such as you and me and Manasseh. Christ is telling us to fear the one who can cast the body and the soul into hell, but at the same time reminding his people that he has more grace than punishment to those that are his. Do not fear, therefore, he says in Matthew Chapter 10, verse 31, just a few verses later. You are more valuable than the sparrows. I'm going to close with this Gearhardus Voss quote that I believe sums uh, this up very well. Let us thank God that when we ourselves enter the valley of the shadow of death, 
we have infinitely more than a promise to stay our hearts upon, that ours is the fulfillment of the promise, the fact of the revelation, nay, the risen Lord himself, present with rod and staff beside us. Amen.